Today we continue a sermon series on the parables Christ told as an important part of his preaching and teaching ministry. I want to draw your attention to a parable that, in my experience, doesn't get a lot of airtime. It's in Matthew chapter 21. I'll read verses 28 through 32 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of this sermon is A Call to Integrity. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later, he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was in the kitchen and my wife Dana was in the living room. She said, I'm going to go to the store. Could you move the laundry from the washer into the dryer after the wash finishes? Sure will, I said. I took care of something in the kitchen and proceeded to take care of a few other things. Moved along, and a couple hours later, after Dana had returned from the store, I walked into the living room, and I heard the dryer running. And it was then that I realized I never moved the laundry from the washer to the dryer. Thankfully, Dana was very gracious about it. But my words went one way, and my deeds went the other. A father says to his son, go work in the vineyard. Sure will, the son replies. But he never does. How many similar scenarios have unfolded in households across the years? Would you wash the dishes? Sure will. The next morning they lie dirty in the sink. Would you fill my car with gas? Sure will. The next day it's on empty. Would you clean your room? Sure will. The next week, there is no sign of progress. Words go one way, deeds go the other. When the father tells his other son to go work in the vineyard, the son says, I will not. 
how brazen, how peculiar. No can do, Dad. Not going to happen. Not today. No siree. He puts his AirPods back in and gazes deep into the abyss of his phone. But then he actually goes and works in the vineyard. The parable is as strange as it is short. The father tells both of his sons to go work in the vineyard. One says yes, but does not go work. The other says no, but does go work. What in the world is going on here? The broader context sheds some light. Before the parable, the chief priests and elders are giving Jesus a hard time, questioning his authority. It's worth noting that the religious leaders, the spiritual authorities, the pastors and deacons and bishops and Sunday school teachers of the day had the most trouble accepting Jesus and his teachings. After the parable, Jesus says to the same group, Look, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. You heard that right. The quintessential sinners were heeding the message of John the Baptist and going into the kingdom of God while the religious establishment refused to repent. In view of the broader context then, the parable critiques the religious leaders as disobedient children. They were sent to work in the father's vineyard, but they failed to do so. They were supposed to serve faithfully among God's people, but they did not follow through. They verbally affirmed God's will, but they did not enact it. Their words went one way, but their deeds went the other. Their speech was a bullseye, but their actions missed the whole target. Their walk and their talk didn't match any better than a Yankees cap with a Red Sox jersey. This is part of a larger pattern in Matthew's gospel, wherein Jesus critiques people whose words go one way, but their deeds go the other. In Matthew 7, he says to his disciples, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. In Matthew 15, he says to the scribes and Pharisees, You hypocrites! Isaiah prophesied about you rightly when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Matthew 23, he said of the scribes and Pharisees, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. One of the things that disturbs Jesus most is when people speak piously, but do not act accordingly. More than a criticism of the religious establishment, the parable admonishes everyone whose words go one way, but their deeds go the other, who verbally affirm the Father's will, but do not comport themselves congruently. Notice that the decisive question, 
at the end of the parable is not which of the two believed the will of his father. It's not which of the two affirmed the will of his father. It's not which of the two professed the will of his father. It's which of the two did the will of his father. God commands obedience, not lip service. If we say we follow a loving Savior, we must be loving in our actions. If we say we follow an inclusive Savior, we must be inclusive in our actions. If we say we follow a peacemaking Savior, we must be peacemakers in our actions. If we say we follow a forgiving Savior, we must be forgiving in our actions. If we say we follow the servant Savior, we must serve others in our actions. Our words must materialize into works. Our doctrine must develop into deeds. Our convictions must be concretized in our conduct. Even the most profound Christian articulations are undercut by incompatible actions. Karl Barth was a Swiss genius who is widely regarded as the greatest theologian of the 20th century. His writings evince a level of profundity and insight that is rare and remarkable. His multi-volume magnum opus entitled Church Dogmatics was a watershed in the history of theology. Barth's actions were also admirable when he stood firmly against Hitler and when he ministered to prisoners. But in relation to his wife Nellie, his actions faltered. Barth engaged in an affair with his assistant Charlotte, and even welcomed her into his home to live with him and his wife Nellie and their children. This was so blatantly misguided that Bart's own mother wrote to him saying, what good is the most discerning theology when it suffers a shipwreck in your own home? In other words, what good is it when your words go one way but your deeds go the other. Sometimes we emphasize mental belief and theological doctrine and the verbiage of faith to the point that we lose sight of doing God's will, executing Christ's teachings, enacting the gospel. But the parable suggests that if Jesus had to choose between a word of faith without a deed and a deed of faith Without a word, he would prefer the deed without all the verbiage. Bible scholar Craig Bloomberg writes, In the kingdom, performance takes priority over promise. Still though, wouldn't the best case scenario involve both speaking and enacting the faith? Instead of one son saying yes and then not going to work, and the other son saying no and then going to work, why can't they both say yes and both go to work? Why can't they both verbally agree to the Father's will and both do the Father's 
will. In truth, they can. It is a possibility. When the words go one way and the deeds follow along, it's called Christian integrity. My paternal grandfather, Richard Cadbury Schoonmaker, died back in 2005. I was honored to preach his service at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Charlotte. One of the things I said about him in the eulogy was, he said what he did, and he did what he said. It was my way of trying to honor him as a man of integrity, from whom I learned a great deal. Our deeds can discredit our words or demonstrate them. Our deeds can counteract our words or confirm them. Our deeds can belie our words or verify them. Our deeds can sabotage our words or substantiate them. Our deeds can subvert our words or strengthen them. When I departed Murfreesboro, Tennessee, in 2019 to become your pastor, I had been working for two years to bring the distinguished theologian Miroslav Wolf to speak at our church in Murfreesboro. He was to preach our Sunday morning service one weekend and then deliver a community lecture the same afternoon in our sanctuary. We made the plans and had it all set up. I relocated to Richmond before the event took place, but I heard about it after the fact from my former colleagues at First Baptist Church of Murfreesboro. They said all went well, but there was one wrinkle. It turned out that on the day of the service, a protester stationed himself on Main Street right in front of the church building and demonstrated against Wolf. The protester was advocating for the King James Version only, among other things, and causing a little ruckus. Now, Wolf has written eloquently about the Christian calling to embrace persons who differ from us. For example, he writes, the will to give ourselves to others and welcome them, to readjust our identities, to make space for them, is prior to any judgment about others. When Wolf found out about the protester, he actually walked outside the church, walked down the street and struck up a conversation with this man on the street corner. He peaceably attempted to dialogue with the protester in pursuit of mutual understanding and peace. Now here's a full professor of systematic theology at Yale, the founding director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture, the author and editor of 26 books including multiple award winners, and one of the most renowned theologians in the entire world. And not only has he agreed to come speak to a mid-sized church in a mid-sized town, but while he's there, a KJV-only demonstrator is criticizing him and stirring things up. And his response to this man, who from a worldly perspective doesn't merit five seconds of Professor Wolf's time, is to walk out of the church and walk toward him and reach out to him with a loving welcome and seek mutual understanding and peace, practicing the very Christian principle he has so elegantly written about. My former colleague who's telling me about this on the phone said, yeah, he's the real deal. 
Indeed, his words went one way, and his deeds followed along. None of us, however, is a perfect representation of our noblest ideals. None of us demonstrates a flawless Christian witness. If you look with sustained scrutiny for any sliver of inconsistency, you will eventually find it in even the saintliest believers. The late pastor John Claypool wrote about two men from his congregation who went out knocking on doors to tell people about the gospel and invite them to come to church. At one house, the owner responded rather heatedly, I'm not going to go to church because it's just a bunch of hypocrites. One of the men from the church replied, well, come on down, there's always room for one more. While none of us has a resume of deeds that impeccably reflects our own highest standards, we can avoid hypocrisy by doing what we say and saying what we do, by professing faith in Christ and practicing faith in Christ, by living in such a way that our words go one way and our deeds follow along. Each of us has the grand opportunity to live in a way that discredits that tired old criticism that Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites. If we believe in a God of encouragement, we can write people notes of encouragement. If we believe in a gospel that brings joy, we can practice a disposition of joy in our interactions with others. If we believe Christ prioritizes justice, we can put our hands and feet to the work of making justice happen in our community. If we trust the Messiah who blessed the poor, we can do something concretely to bless the poor. When our deeds of faith corroborate our words of faith, we exhibit a compelling witness of Christian integrity. Not only does such integrity adhere to Christ's teaching, it also coheres with Christ's life. If we combine the willing words of one son with the responsive action of the other, we get a picture of the perfect son of the Father, Christ himself. Christ was a man of indisputable integrity. He said what he did, and he did what he said. He taught his disciples to pray privately to the Father who sees in secret. And he himself would retreat to a private place to pray. He said, I am gentle and humble in heart. And the night before he died, he bent low and washed his disciples' feet. He taught his disciples to welcome little children. And he himself took the little kids in his arms and blessed them taught his disciples to heal the sick and he himself healed people from all manner of infirmity. He taught his followers to pray to God saying your will be done and he himself when faced with arrest in the garden of Gethsemane prayed Father not my will but your will be done. He taught his disciples to forgive abundantly 77 times and so on and he himself when fixed on a cruel cross shouted out father forgive them 
He said he would be betrayed, killed, and on the third day he would rise again. And after he was betrayed and killed on the cross, sure enough, on the third day he arose from the grave, leaving death in shambles. Christ is the one whose deeds always match his words, whose actions always confirm his speech, whose performance always fulfills his promises. We can trust Christ without hesitation. We can trust Christ without reservation because he demonstrates unfailing integrity. When he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we can count on it. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, we can count on it. When he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, we can count on it. When he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, we can count on it. When he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, we can count on it. When he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, we can count on it. When he says, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest, we can count on it. When he said, those who believe in me will live even though they die, we can count on it. When he said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life, we can count on it. When he says he's going to return for us so that where he is, there we may be also in the Father's house in the glorious kingdom of heaven, we can count on it. And until that great day, Christ has given us tremendous inspiration to live in such a way that our words go one way and our deeds follow along. Well, thanks be to God for our Savior. Amen.